Bandwidth for Change Log is provided by Fastly. Learn more at Fastly.com. I'm Kavya Joshi, and it's go time. It's Go Time, a weekly podcast where we discuss interesting topics around the Go programming language, the community, and everything in between. If you currently write Go or aspire to, this is the show for you. All right, everybody, welcome back for another episode of Go Time. It's episode number 42, and today's sponsors are Backtrace and Datadog. On the show today, your hosts are myself, Eric St. Martin. Carlicia Pinto is also on the show. Say hello, Carlicia. Hi, everybody. And also, Johnny Borsico is here. Say hello, Johnny. Hey there. Happy to be back. And our special guest for today is uh, Kavya Joshi. Now, I uh, we should probably start with like an intro. I know you've done a couple of talks and stuff and you're going to be speaking at GopherCon, but we'd love to hear it from you, kind of who you are, the things you're working on. Uh, cool. So I currently work at a startup in San Francisco called Samsara. Um, we're an internet of things startup. We do uh, hardware, software, firmware, and I'm primarily a backend or a systems developer. Uh, and I do a little bit of infrastructure uh, as well. Um, I feel like as of recently, I kind of have a crush in firmware too, so I've been trying to do a little more of that. Uh, apart from my day job, um, I speak at technical conferences. I've given uh, a couple talks on Go, uh, or Go-related at least. Um, I've given uh, a talk on Python, uh, on a Python library. Um, I'll be speaking at GopherCon this year, which I'm super excited about. And uh, I write a little. Uh, I just published uh, an article today. In fact, it's my first uh, technical blog post, believe it or not. Uh, so I do all of that. Yeah. So one of the talks that you gave, um, we'll, we'll start there, was uh, Strange Loop, I think, right? Yeah. Where you did the you did the talk about um, the implementation of the race detector. Mm-hmm. So that was actually really cool. Did you come up with the idea for that, or like? Just like digging into the internals, and you're like, "Hey, I know how I know all about the internals of this. I should go talk about it." Ah, uh, no, I, I, <laughs> uh, that would have been quite convenient. Uh, no, I think the way that talk came to be was um, I heard about the race detector and I used it, and I was like, "Wow, this is really cool. I wonder how it works." Um, and I have a master's in CS, and as part of my master's, I was in a group that did like. Uh, distributed systems and operating systems. Um, and so I had a little bit of that academic background to dive into uh, the paper, the thread sanitizer paper behind the Go race detector. And then I read the paper. I was like, wow, that sounds really cool, but I still don't know how it actually works in practice. And then that resulted in me like digging through the source code and uh, playing with the tool in depth. Um, I was like, this would make a really neat talk. Uh, and that's how that talk came to be. Now, it's actually really interesting. Like the race detector has been really cool since it, it came out. I never knew how it worked under the covers and the vector clocks and things like that. Uh, yeah, I thought it was really cool how something that I'd only like mostly read about in the context of distributed systems was uh, implemented in this in this tool. Um, 
the relation is obvious, right? Because you're talking about uh, concurrency, um, but the translation of ideas uh, was quite cool. I thought it was pretty, uh, pretty neat. So funny story about the race detector was, I think it was the second GopherCon. Um, one of the speakers, Blake Caldwell, was <laughs> at the speaker dinner and he was raving about how awesome the race detector was. And the person next to him, which happened to be Dimitri, turns and was like, thank you. <laughs> it's just, uh-huh. He didn't realize in, in all this hype about the race detector, he was sitting next to the person who wrote it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Dimitri's done a, a lot of cool stuff, huh? Like some of the other tools he's come out with, like GoFuzz seems neat. Yeah. Um, all the work on the scheduler, all very interesting. Yeah, it's hard to follow all the stuff that some of the people um, on the Go team are doing, which is so many great contributions. <laughs> yeah. So that talk is still super valuable for, I think it was mid last year, or was it the year before that you did that, that talk at uh, Strange Loop? That was last Strange Loop, so September 2016. Yeah, so still very, very relevant for anybody who's interested in how things work under the covers. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah, and I think that's my favorite type of talk to give or material to present. It's going beneath the surface. Um, I I find that interesting, and I think it adds a lot of value to people's understanding of systems, uh, which is cool. Yeah, I think I love the idea of learning at least one or two layers below the things you use. Mm-hmm. I think probably from an engineering perspective, a lot of it's because there's a lot of like leaky abstractions. Mm-hmm. So abstractions are great when everything works perfectly. But when things start to go wrong, you kind of want to understand what the thing you're using is doing to help <laughs> you know, troubleshoot that. Uh, yeah. Plus, it's just super geeky to know how some of this stuff works. Like, why do you know yeah. how the scheduler works? You're like, uh, well, you see... <laughs> I had this odd question one day and I was like, how does that work? <laughs> and it ended up spending like 20 hours on it. But now I can tell you all about it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, at least these are things that are useful later. <laughs> yep. So, Kavya, one of the things I actually found quite interesting in that talk was uh, how you sort of um, got into the vector clocks and how they're used. That was sort of the first time I'd seen sort of the applicability of vector clocks um, in, in that way. I thought basically the illustrations you're using uh, the, were, were kind of on point and sort of describing that and sort of making it clear for somebody who has technical background, like how that kind of works. But also I thought it was approachable, right? So if somebody's a, a beginner and, and they're sort of uh, don't quite know how concurrency works, they don't quite know how multi-threaded programs work, that was sort of a good introduction into sort of uh, some of the mechanics that are used in that world. Is that something that you started out wanting to do to sort of make something that's approachable to various scale levels or this is just the way it made sense in your mind? Um, that's a good question. Um, I think in terms of the flow, that's how it, uh, it made sense to me. But while creating uh, the content, um, I explicitly was trying to make it accessible um, for people with computer science backgrounds, but not necessarily the knowledge on the topics that I was going to talk about or I was going to have to use uh, to explain how the race detector worked. Um, I think in in taking something that's uh, deeply technical and making that approachable and accessible. First of all, it's interesting because it's it's sort of a challenge, right? It's like, I have all this background knowledge, but I'm going to try and explain it to somebody who might not necessarily have that background knowledge. It, they have knowledge in other 
um, in other areas and other topics, but not necessarily uh, the knowledge that's relevant to what I want to talk about. How do I make it accessible to them? Uh, and that's an interesting like communications challenge. And I think the second thing about that is in like presenting a technical ideas in an accessible manner, I think it only results in betterness and like better systems in uh, producing more interesting conversations um, and sharing knowledge in a way that is um, that is accessible. Um, so here's a concrete example, right? Like Julia Evans does a great job of explaining how to use uh system tools like Strace or Netcat. And she does a really good job of taking away the barrier to using those tools. Uh, similarly, I have a friend who really likes performance engineering and talks about like profiling and tracing with, with me and the rest of his friends. And I think in like sharing that knowledge in a way that's accessible to all of us, it, it results in like better systems being produced, more interesting conversations, like overall, like goodness all around. I I really love Julia Evans' drawings. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, those zines are pretty rad. I ended up printing a bunch of them and giving them to my interns. It was great. <laughs> I love the point that Kavya is making about presenting technical co content in an accessible manner. And I'm thinking here, as, gr as Go is growing so fast and people are coming into the language how do people who are writing technical content and who are writing and giving presentations, how can they do this in a better way? And I'm wondering if you have tips to share with us and with the audience. Gosh, I wish I had um, like knowledge that I could speak about in general. Um, I think when I write or when I write a talk, uh, write an article, I spend a lot of time thinking about the presentation of the content, things like what order to present it in, um, like what diagram, what animation would make it like most intuitive for somebody listening to the talk for the first time, like what would make it accessible to them. I think a lot of it comes from our assumptions of what we assume everybody else knows. And mm -hmm. in computer science, especially, more and more people are coming from not without formal educations. So that um, assumption of having like a formal background in computer science can be difficult. You know, I, I know there's a lot of concepts that aren't that hard to explain to people um, that aren't familiar with it. But, you know, you open up a book and you're handed a bunch of, or, or a white paper, you know, save yourself. <laughs> Looking at the formal <laughs> proofs, you're just like, uh, okay, maybe I'm not smart enough to understand this. And really sometimes it's almost like uh, if you start at a new company and you're not familiar with the domain, when everybody's <laughs> speaking in acronyms and all kinds of things that you don't already understand, the whole business of what you're building can seem completely confusing and out of reach, right? But once yeah. you start learning the vocabulary and the vernacular, like, it starts you start realizing it's not as complex as you thought it was. You're just not aware of all the little pieces and how they come together. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think that's a great analogy, right? Um, the folks we're talking about, uh, or the folks, your audience, your target audience, they aren't necessarily beginners, um, or they aren't necessarily people without computer science backgrounds. It's just that they don't have the background knowledge that uh, you do, uh, because of all the time you've spent prepping on the prepping for the talk, or just your general interest in the subject. They don't have that background knowledge. So 
I think it's just being aware of uh, your target audience, like the fact that they just might not have spent as much time geeking out on the subject uh, as you have. I thought it was a worthwhile question to ask you this question of like, if you have any tips to share about how to prepare content, because I saw your talk at Strange Loop a long time ago, and it was excellently done. Thank you. Uh, it really conveyed really well, like Johnny was saying, conveyed really well the concepts of uh, the race detector and things that had to do with it. And for example, for me, one thing that I do, and I'm not claiming I'm even any good at it, but just I go from like, okay, it's it just the quality of my writing improved tremendously if I just, I finish and I sleep on it. <laughs> and yeah. yeah, and if I sleep on it, like the, the one day it gets better, two days gets even better. And then the margin of, of improvement starts diminishing. But yeah. <laughs> I think, uh, so whatever people can do to um, make the content better, even if it, if it has to wait, I think it's so worthwhile because it will benefit so much more rather than putting something out there that's concise, but not everybody's going to really get it. It's just out blog posts and, and yeah. CFP submissions. It all becomes just a lot of noise. Yeah. So it, it, you were on the track, I think, of say, saying what it is that you do. If you had more items that you wanted to share, it would be great. Uh, yeah, um, I guess getting getting your um, content reviewed by somebody you trust. Um, so I've worked with a lot of great people and um, something like uh, having them read through the article and um, just tell me if it makes sense as an outsider. Um, so we, we're very good about getting our code reviewed all the time, right? Like code review systems. Um, so I think if you get your content reviewed that's helpful makes sense one one of the uh sort of uh, recommendations for beginners in go is to sort of uh, avoid the go routines and and dealing with concurrency um, primitives you know the channels and whatnot um like don't jump into to the deep end sort of right away because it's it's there's a there's a whole different sort of world there that you don't necessarily have to have um, um, for a lot of the programs that you write. It's okay to sort of write them procedurally because you're going to get a you know a, a major speed bump anyway. Um, come you know especially if you're coming from something like a you know, Ruby or Python and whatnot. Um, mm -hmm. So for somebody who is sort of basically doesn't typically program in a multi-threaded environment. And they need to sort of, you know, okay, I know I've been told not to sort of jump in, but now I'm, I feel like I'm ready to jump in, right? I'm, I'm, I, I need to know um, some things, right? I need to have some background for that's going to help me to tackle, you know, a concurrency and go and do it the right way. What would you say some of that background is? And perhaps you might even have some resources that maybe we could post after the fact in the channel or on a podcast page. But what are some of the resources that you think? would be useful for a beginner to go to sort of have, what sort of background would they need to have to really be able to take advantage of concurrency and Go? Um, I think the Go docs do a great job. Um, there's the walkthrough tutorial, which explains uh, the basic concepts uh, pretty well. But then I think the best way to learn is to read a lot of code and write a lot of code. So uh, there's several uh, open source Go projects. So if you go and walk through the code, uh, probably bust out your favorite debugger. Um, 
or, or just write a lot of simple, even if you start with a simple example, um, t- to just play around with what happens if I spawn one go routine? What happens if I spawn two go routines? Uh, what if I use a channel in this way? What if I cha- use a channel in that way? So uh, basically by getting really hands-on into writing code and reading code. Uh, I'm trying to think who was the um, wrote the Go concurrency visualization tool. Like oh, that's, yes. That's, that's really cool. cool to kind of yeah. play with and understand kind of how these things are happening in parallel. Yes. Uh, I, I know the tool you're talking about, but I'm blanking on the author's name as well. Yeah, there's just, a recorded uh, GopherCon video, right? Is that what you're thinking about, Eric? There's a, yeah. there's a recording. Some Names escaping me. The, the number of speakers at the conference are, are <laughs> growing so big. So, I mean, it's o- over 100, I think, in total, right? Across all the years. So remembering everybody's name. Wow. It's a good problem to have, right? Uh, you're one of the organizers, is that right? Yes, yes. Yeah, cool. Uh, is organizing GopherCon just insane at this point? Uh, it, it, has its, it has its moment. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, the beginning of the year um, is usually pretty heavy, and then like the month before the conference is really insane. But it's all worth it to see it come together in the end. But yeah, we're we're super excited to have you. And the deep dive into concurrency into channels is going to be really cool. Even I've never looked at how um, channels are actually implemented. So I think that's going to be really interesting. Cool. I'm super excited to go to GopherCon uh, this year. Is that um is that another one of your your kind of passion things where you're like I wonder how that works and kind of just dive down? <laughs> yes, yes, uh, and especially with uh, channels and Go, they're offered as such a such a primitive, such a language primitive, and uh, so diving into how they worked um, was quite fun, and also the fact that they interact with uh, so many parts of the runtime, as you'd expect, uh, it's pretty. Uh, I, I'm excited about the talk. I'm I'm kind of sad I'll have to wait a month to see. Because <laughs> usually the conference is so busy, we usually watch everything when the videos come out. Uh, yeah, that makes sense. I wanted to ask you about the article you just wrote for Riley. Mm-hmm. Uh, I read through it. It's pretty awesome. Um, <laughs> so as Samsara, where you work, Samsara, is it it? Yeah, that's right. Do you follow these guidelines? <laughs> Do you have a set of guidelines? <laughs> Trick question. <laughs> Do you practice what you preach? <laughs> uh, so we follow most of everything in that article. For example, we use the panic wrap uh, library that I talk about uh, to report panics um we wrap all the go routines that we create in a in a top level function that does a recover for panic reporting and we especially find the panic reporting uh very valuable for our production services um we use an errors package the packages is popular and for good reason it's a it's a useful package um we ship application metrics um so that's three of five uh, what was number four? Structured logging. We use structured logging. Um, we uh, currently ship our logs to uh, Amazon's AWS's hosted uh, Elasticsearch service, but it's pretty terrible. So we'll probably switch to something like Honeycomb soon. 
and uh, testing. I wish we did a better job at testing our code, um, just in general, or having good testing practices. But at a system of our scale, um, unless you you start with like a good testing story from the beginning, it's hard to come in and sort of uh, get that rolling. So uh, we're getting there slowly, but um, I feel like on the testing side, we could do a better job. So let me just mention uh, that the article is a, an article on writer.com and it's called How to Ship Production-Grade Go. <laughs> Definitely a worthwhile reading. And sorry, I didn't mean to put uh, you or your company on spot, but when I was <laughs> reading this, I was thinking it's really cool. How, how, you know, how do you go about uh, maybe introducing this at your company if, if you're already not following these guidelines or any other kind of guidelines? for goal development. Yeah, yeah. Uh, no, that's a good question. Yeah, what about y'all? Do you have any good tips for um, other ways to make Go production grade? Well, I guess a lot of it would be the same for any program in production. Like, assume everything dies and that nothing is perfect. The, you know, you'll get <laughs> clock drift, you'll get network issues, and mm -hmm. those are usually the odd things to track down. Yeah. I think this is a good starting point for everybody, though. I think um, for a lot of us, so sort of uh, using a 12-factor model um, for configuration of your environment where the application runs um, uh, is something that you know um, has been a sort of a best practice for a while now. I think it's still very applicable, for, you know, for for Go programs, and it's something that we heavily use in our in our organization. Um, uh, also, uh, when it comes to sort of uh, designing your applications, right? It's it's I think what we've seen that has worked consistently um, well for us, you know, whether it comes to program design or for in turn making testing easier is to ha rely heavily on interfaces. Um, so we tend to sort of rely on interfaces you know, over concrete types quite a bit. And then we worry about the implementation details later because it's much easier to just you know, bring in a concrete type and just satisfy the interface later on. And while you're sort of designing, while you're on a spike and trying to try some things, um, then it is to sort of uh, um, sort of rip out those concrete types afterwards. So mm -hmm. basically that, that approach really of saying, hey, um, I, I, may, I may not have all the answers right away, but I, I, I can play around with some interfaces and help me understand the program a little bit, I think has been a, a really, really great for us and sort of really architecting our application the way we want it to be. I love a lot of the stuff that's out nowadays, too, for um, just configuration management and secrets management and things, too. Um, so that gets more and more important, too, as you move applications through environments and prevents people from doing things like submitting credentials to GitHub repos and things like that. That happens a lot. Yeah. So uh -huh. like some of these things like Vault and Kubernetes. Secrets Vault and, is great. Yeah. Uh -huh. Vault is amazing. Docker also came out with a secret management system. Oh, interesting. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Did I get it wrong? Nobody knows this. <laughs> cool. I, I mean, it wouldn't surprise Pretty me. Sure. It, it, it falls in line, you know, with a lot of the container orchestration, you know, the like Kubernetes and things like that uh, manages secrets. So, you know, with them doing their own orchestration things, it makes sense for them to also manage secrets being handed to containers. But I, I don't think I have seen that. So I'm not super familiar. I haven't played with Kubernetes myself. We use um, AWS, so we just run our containers in ECS. Um, but uh, how does Kubernetes does, do secret management? Uh, yeah, so there's a, a resource uh, type that is secrets, and you can manage things. 
Um, and then basically, um, there's a, almost like a manifest file that you use to deploy your containers or pods of containers out. And you can map in those secrets as either a file. So anything running in the container sees it as a file or um, as an environment variable. So your, your program can just assume that a file exists on the hard drive or that an environment variable exists and doesn't need to know uh, or care how it gets there, which is really great because QA environment can have its own keys. Production can have its own keys. Application doesn't change. And then for testing, even locally, you just set your environment variables and done deal. Yeah, that sounds, that sounds useful. And I just realized we are running late for our first sponsor break. So let's go ahead and take our first sponsor break. Our first sponsor for today is Backtrace. Software teams use Backtrace to take the headache and guesswork out of debugging across their environments. Backtrace jumps into action when your Go application fails by capturing detailed application state information, including the complete set of Go routines, channels and their wait durations, and my favorite, scheduler information. Backtrace analyzes this state and archives it in a centralized object store, allowing you to explore interesting patterns across your errors and plug rich error data into your resolution workflows. Backtrace is used by companies like Fastly, which is ChangeLog's bandwidth partner, Limelight Networks, Message Systems, AppNexus, and more. Head to backtrace.io slash gotime to learn more and start your free trial. So we are back talking to Kavya. So we were just talking about Kubernetes. Uh, we were just running a little late, so we had to, we had to cut that one short. Um, did did you have any other questions about Kubernetes? Is is that something your your team is eyeballing or um, eyeballing? But right now it's it's on the wish list because we uh, all we run all infrastructure in AWS and um, AWS has its own container management and orchestration scheduling service called ECS. Um, so we're quite tied in at this point. But the more I read about Kubernetes, the more I wish it was easy to switch over for sure. I haven't I haven't looked at uh, Amazon's implementation of the, the container orchestration. But yeah, we typically try to design as much of the software as possible where it doesn't have to be aware that it's it's run within a container. Kind of like how the secret management works. Like mm-hmm. really, you know, it could be mesosphere or anything else as long as the secret is handed in through an environment variable, you know, no code has to change. Mm-hmm. Uh yeah, so for our secrets um, in ECS, well, you basically run a Docker container. Um, so you can pass in um, environment variables to your Docker container. Um, other than that, you can, I think you can manage uh, access control on your other resources using Amazon IAM roles. Um, but yeah, I, I don't think they have anything specifically for secrets, but you can make existing systems work. On, in our organization, we too um, rely on AWS ECS for our image deployments. Uh, we do rely on uh, Amazon has uh, the KMS the Key Management Service, um, which provides uh, we'll, we'll kind of provides you right. They'll provide you sort of a um, master keys that uh, basically you can you can rotate them at a regular interval and whatnot. And there, there's some best practices around that. But what we do is uh, basically that allows us to get those keys, uh, encrypt the, the, the secrets, um, and then um, basically we ship our um, containers, our images with a tool internally that is able to sort of uh, retrieve, make a request to, to an API to sort of rec- retrieve um, some data from S3 
and that object itself is, is, is encrypted using the key from KMS. And then basically at that point, we can decrypt it and get the value and inject it into the environment as the application is booting. So that allows, that, that allows us basically not to have to pass or, or, or uh, um, keys around sort of in the nude, so to speak, um, mm -hmm. and basically just you know, keep it encrypted until it's actually retrieved and, and sort of the, uh, decrypted in the environment where it's needed. So that's worked out for us um, quite well. Um, and uh, it's, it's um, going back to what you mentioned about Kubernetes, like I, I read about Kubernetes, I'm like, oh man, that's they're doing some really really cool stuff. And now I'm like, okay, well, we're so tied into AWS right now, trying to bring in you know Kubernetes <laughs> and sort of redo everything we've done. Uh, yeah. It's just you know, it, it's cool, but it's just too costly for us. Mm -hmm. I need yeah. to I need to look at at how that works because I'm interested whether Amazon has some of the the newer concepts of Kubernetes like um, deployments or cluster federation. So like deployments would be, um, so you have these primitives like a, a replica set and that basically says, so you have a pod, which is a, a group of containers that move together. And then you have a replica set that says, I need N number of these pods running within the cluster. And then you have a service um, that you basically expose. It works basically as a load balancer between those things. So a deployment you can set up um, these resources that need to be deployed, and it will basically deploy a, a new replica set with the new version of your containers in it, and then slowly increment the count on that, but decrement the count on the old one for you, and just mm -hmm. kind of serve as like this rolling update. And I don't know whether Amazon kind of their their container orchestration platform like offers things like this. Um, yeah, so on our end, basically we have, so Amazon has uh, this concept of, uh, of um, sort of task definition, which basically says, okay, for, for this given uh, container, um, these are sort of the, the configuration parameters that we want, right? You know, this is how much memory and CPU and all uh, resource allocation. Um, when you have sort of a, a main environment, this is sort of where I want these things distributed. I want them distributed across um, different uh, um, container instances and, and different availability zones and whatnot. But then it also, um, Amazon also adds a service um, concept around that that basically says, okay, you know, I'm going to create a service, and it's going to be for long, long-lived tasks, right? Um, defined by the task definition, and I can, and I want to have n number of them, and I'm going to mm -hmm. specify sort of a maximum health um, percentage and and a sort of a minimum health percentage. So, say, you know, let's take a simple example. If if I have, if I need at a minimum two of of this particular um, container running, I'll say I want a service with a desired count of two. Right, and then what happened, and with a minimum health of say fifty percent, right, right. So at that point, what happens is when you have a, a new container that you want to you want to roll out, um, what it will do is because it, because of that fifty percent requirement, it'll spin down one of them, right, spin up the new container image, right, and then once that other one is up. It'll basically spin down the other one and then replace it by the newer version. So it does have some of that orchestration in place, and you also have the ability to sort of uh, distribute the services on different instances across AZs. So it's kind of working out for us uh, quite well using that using that scheme. Oh, that's awesome. Mm -hmm. That's what we do as well. But the the additional piece that the ECS uh, service doesn't provide is the load balancing. So you would have to like you'd have a load balancer in front of your, like an ALB, an application load balancer in front of your service, for example. Um, and if you set uh, certain parameters on it, it will continue to route uh, traffic to your services. And the way that's uh, managed that Johnny talked about um, 
that side of it works out. So the ECS service will bring up, bring down tasks with the new definition. Um, but you have to ensure that you have uh, a load balancer in front of your ECS service. Yeah, we, we ended up having to sort of, uh, in the beginning, roll our own sort of uh, um, internal load balancer. Um, we had one service whose job was uh, to sort of route traffic to the different services that it was aware of. So we had kind of had our own service discovery um, behind the scenes. And then internally, we had an internal load balancer that basically all the requests went through. And then uh, that, that service discovery um, sort of component we then route the traffic to different services and the, the boxes that it was aware of. Um, mm. um, AWS has uh, um, uh, what they're calling the ALB or application load balancer, which is different from their um, um, classic elastic load balancer. Um, the ALB has the capability, I think, to route the traffic uh, to the different um, um, services that it is aware of within your cluster. I haven't played around mm -hmm. too much with that, but it, it does sound like it helps with that aspect of it. Although service discovery is one of those things where there's different ways to do it, um, and, I, and I really like sort of a HashiCorps. Um, they have um, a component that actually does that quite well. Uh, I'm blanking on the name of it right now, but uh, um, they have one, and, and there's actually um, Linkerd is, is a very good one as well. Um, so there's lots of options out there, um, but, you know, but obviously you kind of find the one that works in, in your environment. Mm -hmm. Cool. Uh, speaking of HashiCorp's tools, because you mentioned Vault and uh, the one that you just mentioned, uh, anybody here play around with Terraform? Uh, I haven't, no. Okay. Uh, it's it's another HashiCorp tool that um, is pretty magical. <laughs> yeah. a, a lot of the HashiCorp tools are magical. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I know. I'm a, I'm a big fan of, of, of those folks there. They're, they come out with some really, really cool tools. Um, so for those, um, Kavi, you want to talk about a little bit about the, uh, what the tool does for those who don't know? Oh, sure. Um, so Terraform uh, basically is a, is a tool that helps you manage your uh, infrastructure. So manage and, and uh, bring up infrastructure. Um, but the cool thing about it is you specify uh, the infrastructure you want as uh, configuration so it's de uh, it's declarative uh, and terraform looks at the state of your existing infrastructure looks at the configuration you've specified uh, basically does a diff of it in some way um, and figures out what uh, what actions to perform to bring your infrastructure to up to the state you specify you want it to look like um and it uh, applies those infrastructure changes um and and it, it figures out dependence so basically it creates this graph and it figures out dependencies and uh so things can happen in parallel like modifications can happen in parallel figures out what dependencies are um so it ends up being a, a, a very fast and like easy way to specify changes to your infrastructure. Um, we just started to use Terraform, so I'm, I, I, I'm, I'm a little uh, taken by it right now. <laughs> um, the, uh, on the AWS stack, I'm not sure if you, you, you played around with that, but the, the counterpart to that is uh, um, um, CloudFormation, uh, which once I sort of discovered in, in the beginning, I kind of sort of balked at sort of specifying my architecture you know, through like JSON and YAML. Um, but once, once you kind of, you know, <laughs> once you kind of dive in a little bit and sort of, you know, look at CloudFormation for what it is, um, you realize, oh man, like, you know, it's hard to go back to sort of a, a manual or um, using tools like Chef or Puppet and whatnot to sort of, you know, orchestrate that stuff. Um, CloudFormation kind of, once you really understand how it works, it's really a great tool just for that purpose. 
Um, I, right now, it's pretty much my go-to for any sort of stack that I need to stand up. Um, basically, mm-hmm. you know, it's easy to just say, hey, I want the same exact stack in a different availability zone or a different region uh, altogether. And then, you know, basically things just happen magically. It, it's, it's really awesome to use. Yeah. Yeah. So Terraform works with or you can use it with things like Chef and Puppet for the provisioning step. Um, it, it, what Terraform does really well is just specifying the the infrastructure, like the instances, um, the load balancers, whatever you want uh, to, to provide that specification. Um, so how we tend to use it is we do the provisioning off instances, so actually like installing software and all of that separately. Um, but we use Terraform just to bring up the new infrastructure. Yeah, that's very different from uh, sort of a, you wouldn't use that as part of your typical development workflow. So it's not like it's not like your typical so CI, CD pipeline, right? This is more like for standing up your, your infrastructure that, that first time, or if you need to reproduce it again, you know, at a later date, or if you need to modify it even, right? So mm-hmm. a lot of times, yep. you start out with, you know, hey, I know I want a dozen of these uh, um, um, EC2 instance classes um, that, you know, have this sort of, you know, resource configuration for memory and CPU, and et cetera, et cetera. And then you realize, mm-hmm. oh, I don't need as much as, as I thought before, or I need more, right? So you can easily change that, you know, basically, it's just code, right? Infrastructure is code. So you just commit that, and you make, you know, AWS aware of it, and all of a sudden, you know, the, the state machine kicks in and just says, okay, this is now the desired state, right, for your infrastructure. So if it needs to yep. spin spins down resources, deletes um, things that are no longer needed, and it basically brings you to that desired state. So it's a very good tool for setting up the first time and modifying as you go. Um, but basically, obviously, this is sort of a purely infrastructure, not necessarily sort of a, your, your, your traditional development sort of a release pipeline. I think Changing we're subjects. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, lots of uh, yeah. Are you guys ready to talk about something else? I wanted to ask Kavya about her interest in firmware. And <laughs> <laughs> I think yeah. what I want to ask is, um, you mentioned that you were, you have the interest. So, I mean, it's it sounded like you haven't necessarily started doing anything, but I was super curious to know, what would you do if you could get your hands on a couple of hardware and uh, use Go to do something? Yeah, gosh. So, um, so the the startup I work at does firmware because um, there's a hardware engineering team. Uh, we make the hardware. Um, there's a firmware team, um, and the firmware team actually does use Go. So uh, we have sensors, and the sensors are. Uh, they don't run Go. They're, it's all embedded C. Uh, but the gateways, uh, which run Yocta Linux, um, they run some C++ and some Go. Um, and then, you know, the backends all Go. Uh, and I started at this company as, you know, like a backend system, some infrastructure in that sort of role. Um, but the more I learned about um, the firmware side of things, uh, I... I, I I've grown increasingly fascinated with um, writing firmware code, and um, it's it's cool that you can uh, you can run Go on firmware. So, in terms of what I do with that, oh gosh, so uh, it's alright. So, I... why you think? Why <laughs> did you share? I would love to hear from you. Why? What makes firmware codes interesting to you? Uh, I, I sort of have the opposite reaction uh, whenever I. <laughs> program for hardware because I worked for three years at a company doing just C code for 
but mostly C code for hardware. And <laughs> it's sort of a pain because the hardware breaks and or it doesn't work like the way you expect. So it's not just the software you're dealing with. We're dealing with like this monster. <laughs> <laughs> that, like I have, I'm not an electrical engineer. I have no idea how to deal with this. So uh, that is that. But for me, so I, I was interested to know what makes firmware code writing for you so cool. Um, well, again, with the caveat that I haven't written much, I've I've only tinkered a little bit. Um, I think the trade-offs is somewhat fascinating. Like the firmware team has to. Uh, think about uh, like power consumption, which is not something as as like a backend or software or traditional software programmer you ever have to think about, right? It's like you need to spin up another instance, you need more memory, you need more uh, like CPU, just spin it up, right? I mean, obviously, there's like you optimize your code and all of that, but it's it's very easy. It's not uh, you're not dealing with hard constraints. Whereas when you're talking about firmware programming uh, or programming on a device, those are all like very real and very hard constraints. And uh, a new constraint that you don't even have to think about is like power consumption. Whereas um, as a firmware programmer, you're like, oh, in sleep mode, this is how much power my code is drawing. And when it's not sleeping, uh, this is how much power it's drawing. And that that's just like the, the set of constraints you're dealing with is, is very different. And I think that's what makes it interesting. So are you interested in writing this firmware in Go or just in general? Um, in general, but Go sounds like uh, a, a very convenient way to get started um, with things like GoBot and everything else that's coming out now. Yeah, I think um, I, I kind of mirror the thoughts about like the hardware. Like, so I, I'm not I'm not an electrical engineer, but I have piles of parts because I'm slowly learning. But I think I think the fun part about writing firmware is one. We write so much code that, that runs somewhere else. So writing code that like you actually get to interact with physically, you know, and see it turn things or light stuff up, like it's just really gratifying. Um, yeah. And like the, the thought that you can now invent physical things, not just like programs to run is really cool. Um, yeah. But it, I think kind of like that wanting a deep understanding of how stuff works, I think it's really cool too. like, understanding uh like you said there's odd constraints that come to writing form firmware like actual interrupts and like the amount of time your interrupt runs for and um how many assembly instructions like you can't do like a load modify store because if an interrupt takes place and modifies that register out from underneath you like you can munge it and like Mm -hmm. it's it it sounds like a pain in the butt but i guess the more you build stuff, you want you want harder problems. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so did you so come up with a Concurrency is hard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the the memory constraints are interesting too, though, because especially like if you're working on like say like a normal ARM chip or something like that, depending on what series. I mean, you're working with kilobytes of of mm-hmm. RAM. And even if you, you know, use a, a bus, you know, you're using like an SPI bus or something to talk to an external RAM, like you're still not, you're not dealing mm-hmm. with gigs of RAM where you're like, yeah, who cares? <laughs> yeah. That's uh, their fault for only having eight gigs of RAM instead of 32. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I, we recently switched to using um, a different chipset and a different board for the gateways. And 
uh, the firmware engineers are like, oh my God, we now have like a few hundreds, like maybe like 150 megabytes of RAM available. And it's just like, uh, okay, <laughs> what are you going to do with that? Uh, like, can you blink an LED with that? <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, in the, the kind of, uh, you know, distributed systems and, and cloud world and stuff like that. Like when, you, when you're thinking megs of RAM, you really are like, what are you going to do with that? <laughs> Boot the M if you can. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, like I'm, I'm interested to like understand though. Like in the hardware world, like do you have some sort of a um, assurance that if if you get it to work on the hardware when you're quote unquote developing, um, like it it'll sort of work every time consistently that same way? Do you have any sort sort of guarantee as opposed to the software world? Yeah, so I I can probably take this question. I think we should probably take our next sponsor break first, and then then I'll come in with this, just because this might be a little mm-hmm. bit more. Uh, so <laughs> our second sponsor for today is Datadog. Hey, Gophers, your applications sit on layers of dynamic infrastructure and supporting services, and our friends at Datadog bring you visibility into every part of your infrastructure, plus APM, that integrates deeply with Go libraries for monitoring your application's performance with support for Gin, Gorilla Mux, and gRPC, and more on the way. You can get fine-grained performance metrics from your Golang apps with minimal instrumentation. Datadog integrates seamlessly with all of your apps and systems from Slack to Amazon Web Services, so you can get visibility in minutes. Head to gotime.fm slash datadog to get started, get a free t-shirt, with full observability, distributed tracing, and customizable visualizations, Datadog is loved and trusted by thousands of enterprises, including Salesforce, PagerDuty, and Zendesk. If you haven't tried them yet at your company or on your side project, go to gotime.fm slash Datadog to get started, get a free t-shirt, check them out. Our deepest thanks to them for being a sponsor of the show. So we are back. So before the break, Donnie, you had asked uh, kind of like almost you're talking more like a testing scenario. Um, more like even like running like once you ship your your hardware product, right? Like are you pretty much guaranteed that, you know, your your code, the code that worked while you were testing and developing it is pretty much going to perform the same way consistently when it's in the consumer's hands? Like, do you have any such guarantees? Uh so there's a lot of testing that goes into the physical device and to make sure um, that everything runs. So usually they do like, um, there's a couple of test interfaces. So once the board is designed, um, some people use what's called a bed of nails, which is almost like another thing that comes down and makes contact points onto the physical device. And then it can apply voltage and things like that to different parts of the circuit and then measure other parts of it. And uh, I don't remember the year that this came out, but it's called the Joint Test Action Group, uh, or JTAG. is an interface that a lot of microcontrollers implement. And it basically allows you to um, communicate with all the chips in almost like a shift register fashion. And you can communicate and um, apply voltage or read from pins um, outside of the microcontroller. So you're able to simulate a lot of like unit tests on the actual physical hardware. Um, and, and then as far as the, um, the firmware goes, 
a lot of uh, things like uh, QMU and things like that, uh, unit tests are written. And then uh, almost in the same way, like we write crash-only software and things like that, um, a lot of firmware development people have to try to, because you can actually have hard faults, you know, like if you have a, a stack overflow or something like that, like your, your microcontroller literally goes into a hard fault state and just like stays there. So there's a lot of things where um, people will basically trap those because you get an interrupt when that happens and you can almost set a callback on that interrupt and people will reset the microcontroller to try to get it to reboot into a clean state and things like that. So yeah, it's, it's, it's an interesting new world. I don't develop firmware. Uh, I, like I know in EE and like I've had an interest and I've slowly been learning more things about this. Yeah, it's not like I have a deep interest. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, there's a, there's like, I'm always torn because part of me wants to like take just like a single board computer or like an Intel Edison and put Linux and Go on it. But part of me really loves like the assembly and the C and like learning like the guts of it. So I've got like some dev boards that are like literally just like an ARM processor and some RAM and, you know. Uh, I just got one today. I actually thought a UPS was going to show up while we were on the podcast. Uh, and it has like a 4.3 inch touchscreen on the back of it and a decent amount of RAM and uh, a pretty fast uh, Cortex uh, microcontroller. And I'm dying to write some code for that. <laughs> <laughs> but that's all going to be C or C. Do you think like working on systems with um, so little um, um, resources, but you know, compared to the you know really really powerful servers that we're deploying stuff on in the cloud, like do do you think that sort of stuff teaches you to um, write code uh, that is more performant or that is sort of a, a more conservative with, with regards to uh, resource utilization? I guess you think about it a lot. Um... I try to be cognizant of that whatever I write, but I guess you try to be more aware of it that way. But you usually your compile tools tell you how much space it's going to consume on flash, which is also a problem, right? Like the chip only has so much flash on it for you to actually fit your program in. Like we don't even have to worry about disk storage. Like if you wrote a program so big it fills up your server's hard drive, like you're fired immediately. <laughs> <laughs> but so there's things like that, or you have to write like code that pulls more code from external flash. Um, but I think it forces you to be more aware of how the processor works and assembly instructions and the registers and and how some of that stuff works uh, for sure. So when in the cases where you need to emit data, um, um, it's, it sounds like you can have storage that comes that gets shipped with the product or are you sometimes sort of emitting that stuff um, over a network? And I know like, you know, in the world of IoT that we're in, everything's going to have, you know, be able to talk with a network. Like how do how would you sort of emit data that you need to sort of collect elsewhere? Uh, yeah, I mean, most of it for IoT is going to be some sort of, you know, RF based thing, Bluetooth, Wi-Fi, um, things like that. I mean, you could do a USB interface or an SD card if it's not something, you know. But for debugging purposes, though, a lot of those debug interfaces, you can actually just have like a USB, like a serial connection to your computer that you can kind of push log messages from. Like debugging is probably one of the biggest pains um, with it. One thing I will say, learning about hardware if you're not trying to actually design the electrical circuit, like you're just trying to like build a, a gadget with like Arduino and stuff, 
it's far more approachable than I think I thought it was. Um, and especially a lot of the chips speak uh, really common um, serial interfaces. You have SPI, uh, I squared C, and UART. And usually all of your chips, like your Wi-Fi chip and your main microcontroller will just talk over one of those serial connections or your flash or your RAM will just communicate over that, um, which makes it really cool to reverse engineer hardware that like you have around your house. Like, oh, there's the microcontroller and there's the flash. What kind of data is it storing on there? <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so you can get a lot of chips and wire them together. A lot of times there's uh, like uh, Adafruit and SparkFun yes. are probably my favorite places because you can just order like uh-huh. little breakout boards and then you only yeah, have to Adafruit's like wire good. up. Yeah, you only have to wire up like the power and the serial lines and you're like, all right, I'm good. <laughs> you don't have to worry about all the capacitors and supporting circuitry that, you know, are part of that circuit. So Carlicia, did you get to work with hardware at all or you just mainly wrote firmware? I didn't write firmware. I, I didn't write embedded code. I wrote code that drove machines like printers and okay. uh, laminators, like these huge custom-made machines. And even so, it was a pain. <laughs> Sometimes <laughs> <laughs> the machine would turn off and I wouldn't know how to turn it on. Silly things. <laughs> <laughs> there was no power button. <laughs> it's just all the interruptions you can have with hardware, like programming, and then the hardware breaks and you have to stop. I'm like, okay, I don't even know where to start here. <laughs> yeah, supporting circuitry goes wrong and, and the voltage level drops, you know, uh, you know your main volt- voltage coming through across the board, like that should never go below, say, five volts. And it does, and it puts your, your microcontroller in a weird state. And then there's people who do this on purpose. Like there's um, in, in the reverse engineering hardware world, there's a thing called glitching. So you can set, um, you can basically set, uh, uh, the, the name for these uh, attributes are escaping me, but there's attributes on the, the chip where you can basically put it in a read-only mode, which is what you usually do like when you produce this. So people can't like, or, or um, so that people can't read the firmware off of it to like reverse engineer and stuff. Um, and you can set these basically bit flags on there. So you can't now you can't get at the firmware to see if there's like hard coded passwords and things. But people have found ways to like glitch the power at just like the perfect frequency in order to a fuse is what it's called to basically trip these fuses and then still let you extract the firmware. And it's like <sighs> what level of like super geek do you have to be to like understand the physics of making that happen like oh you know i don't know sounds like sounds like sql injection to me (laughs) (laughs) yeah i remember the first time i saw a talk about that and i was like you what (laughs) you just glitched the power and like oh we're in and they'll uh they'll take heat guns uh like FLIR cameras and stuff like that and They'll x-ray the chips and and be able to see like the communication that's happening between individual transistors and stuff. Just yeah. That's a level I like learning low level stuff, but that's probably a level I will never go to. I'll I'll stick to the cloud, thanks. Now, Johnny, Kavya, do either of you do do you tinker with hardware at home? Um Tinker is as far as I've gotten. Um, I ordered an uh, Adafruit board, an Adafruit board, um, 
But when it gets here, I have, I, I, th- I think I'll start playing with it. But I, I don't have like any awesome um, projects lined up. Yeah, it always starts with something, something silly. And, and sometimes it's just yeah. a matter of like finding a sensor. Like, you know, one of the first things I ever did was, uh, so this was before Arduino got really big. There was a company, uh, they were called NerdKit. And a couple of people at work had bought one. And basically, if you picture the bare bones components that are on an Arduino board, just an AVR microcontroller, the crystal uh, resistors and an LED, they basically just sent you this stuff in a breadboard and like, uh, you know, a long PDF of like how to assemble this thing and, you know, run it. And that's kind of where I started out. And one of my first projects was somebody had sent me like a gas sensor or something that supposedly was able to detect also alcohol. I'm like, I'm going to build a breathalyzer. I don't know why, but <laughs> <laughs> it just sounded cool at the time. And yeah, you just find, it, I'll go through like Adafruit or, or SparkFun or something and just look through stuff. I'm like, oh, that's cool. Like, I'm going to get an LED matrix to work. Yeah. I encourage anybody who hasn't played with hardware just to even start with like a basic Arduino board and uh, um, one of the, they're not called hats, a shield you know, and find a shield to go with it. And you start realizing, like, it's it's not as unapproachable as you think it is. And like I said, there's only a couple of common serial protocols that those chips are usually communicating with. So, you know, Brian, um, who's not on the show today, but him and I have been working on, like, uh, a controller for our, our uh, smokers for barbecue. You know, just the controller stuff. And, you know, he set up an example with uh, a Raspberry Pi and just talking I squared C over the GPI pin to, you know, uh, some relays yeah. and stuff. So it's it's pretty easy to interface with some of that stuff. I was so bummed when it when he's talked to uh, to actually do a barbecue using his pit controller and stuff. You know, at GopherCon was uh, was not accepted. I wonder if uh, the fire marshal had anything to do with that. <laughs> like a live barbecue at a talk at a conference? Why not? I don't. I don't know whether they ever responded back to us about that, uh, about whether or not we could we could have barbecue, uh, we, whether we could bring our own barbecues. Uh, well, I mean, there's still the lightning talk stuff too. the The hardest That's part true. about the talk selection process is the number of the sheer number of submissions we get. And when we get them, we're talking about the tail end of the of the yeah. deadline here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I won't tell you when I submitted my talk. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we know. <laughs> uh, so I, th- I think we kind of sidelined there on uh, some some cloud and, and hardware. <laughs> All the good things. So, but yeah, I, I think your talk is going to be pretty fascinating. I, I think people really are receptive to the, the you know how do how do things work under the covers talks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel like. Go as a um, like the core contributors of Go also do um, like a very good job of um, talking or like I- explaining publishing articles of um, how things work under the hood. There is no content, or I can find any content online about uh, channels already, uh, but the design docs um, for the scheduler, for example, the garbage collector, um, even even just like the commit messages, um, they're all like very, uh, very insightful. It's cool. I mean, I, I think that the reason for a lot of that is 
probably just because like it's a common thing I think I've heard from the Go team when uh, you know asked about some of the stuff is is there implementation details? So I think maybe maybe there's hesitation to put a lot of content out there about how these things are implemented because it could change you know in the matter of one release and maybe they don't maybe maybe it's just a matter of like wanting not wanting to encourage people to develop against the specific implementation um mm-hmm. but i think people also are really interested in knowing how that works plus like you said having an understanding of this stuff a lot brings more people to the discussion of like how does this work how should it work and things mm-hmm. like that um rather than it being kind of like a a secret organization you know it's like oh that's the compiler group you know <laughs> Yeah. No, nobody crosses that barrier. Yeah. Yeah. And I was going to say, it says something about the Go community as well. Um, every time like one of these design documents is put out, for example, uh, the documents like swarming with people reading it and like commenting on it on Hacker News. So there's clearly like an interest um, from programmers and like Go programmers to get into the, the innards of systems, which is nice. All right. So uh, one of the things we do uh, in each episode, and I'm not sure how much time we have left, um, but sometimes we'll talk about some of uh, like interesting projects or news for things that we, uh, we've come across in the past week or, or sometimes more if we didn't have time to talk about it in the show before. Is there anything anybody wants to make sure that we mention before uh, we end the show for today? Um, go for JS is pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> Brian was in love with Gopher.js. I think he's still playing with it on and off. But yeah, he was a big advocate for a while. Uh, yeah, I, writing JavaScript straight up takes me so much time. Uh, but with Gopher.js now, I don't even have to. It's wonderful. <laughs> I think I spent so many years writing JavaScript that it's just it's just easier for me to just write JavaScript. <laughs> um, I haven't, but I mean, in all fairness, I haven't tried Gopher.js. Yeah, we're actually considering rewriting large, large swaths of our um, JavaScript code in Gopher.js or in Go so we can use Gopher.js and then run JavaScript. So here's an interesting question about um, like the adoption of Gopher.js. How does that uh, typically work, like say at your company? Because thinking about the way most companies are structured, you usually have like a back end team and a front end team and the front end team typically controls a lot of the JavaScript. So is there a barrier to entry for the front-end team to pick up Go to learn Gopher.js? Or is this mostly just a a group of um, full-stack kind of, as much as I hate using these buzzwords, um, a bunch of full-stack engineers just kind of controlling the whole application? Um, So... uh the Samsara's, the engineering team at Samsara is pretty small. Um, we're like 10 to 12 people. Um, and we certainly have areas of focus. So um, I'm like on the systems or like the back end team. And there are three of us on that team. But uh, the teams, they're, they're, they're not so much rigidly defined teams as like fluid, uh, fluid teams. I don't tend to do a lot of front end. Um, uh, but there are certainly people who uh, do both front end and we'll do a little bit of back end. And so I feel like most of our, um, most of the people who work on the JavaScript side um, are familiar with Go and write a lot of Go code as well. So 
in general, the parts that we want to convert to Go um, and then use Go for JS for. Um, I feel like it, it'll have to be like a slow and a careful transition, like piece by piece. Um, but uh, I feel like the the team as a whole is on board with it. Oh, that's really interesting. It, it's always been a question of mine for people adopting it. Um, but yeah, I mean, I guess if you're working kind of across the stack, it, it makes sense. But Go is not that hard to pick up, though, too, I guess I'd argue. It, maybe less so than JavaScript. Like it's easier to pick <laughs> up than JavaScript. <laughs> In my opinion, but that's just me. Don't start a war. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I have two community-related uh, news to share. One is the videos for GopherCon India 2017 are out. There are about 22 videos. There are some really good presentations there. And also tomorrow, there, or not tomorrow, today actually, in a couple hours, Dave Cheney is going to do a Go remote meetup, and he's going to talk about the hidden pragmas of Go. I don't think I know what pragmas are. So this is interesting. I just clicked the link. What are pragmas? The, yeah, the right. <laughs> came from the pragma declaration that tells C compilers to alter their interpretation of pieces of code. Now, Go doesn't have a pragma directive, but it does have ways of altering the operation of the Go compiler via directive syntax hidden in com comments. And that was Eric reading from the description of the of the meetup. Yeah, I literally had not heard that this was this meetup was taking place until you just said something. So I happened to click the link like, what is this? <laughs> <laughs> and, Wait, and, that's today, huh? Yeah, yeah but it's recorded. Oh, cool. So you can also watch it later. Yeah, so we'll remember um, to post a link to the recording in the show notes. That way, uh, whoever's listening to this um, after it's been released can watch the video. I also saw a mention of uh, um, Francesc's new Just for Funk episode uh, using context. I watched that. That's, that's actually pretty good. Um, does a good job of sort of walking through the the whys and the hows you'd use sort of the, the context package to uh, to uh, help you sort of handle sort of abrupt termination of client server connections and that kind of stuff. Um, pretty cool episode. Everybody should go watch that. Yeah, he he gave a talk about the about context in India as well. So one of those videos for the GopherCon India this year is his talking about the same. The context package is absolutely amazing, especially for doing like uh, when you kind of have like pipelines and your requests and it's, you know, spinning up other Go routines and things like that to just cancel at the front end and just, you know. But, and also the Just for Funk series is awesome. I, I, I haven't watched all of them yet, but I've been trying to catch up. But I, I love the work that Francesca's doing with that. Have you watched any of those, Kavya? Uh, I've watched some of them. Um, but in general, I think uh, Francesc uh, is just um, like all of the content he puts out is like interesting and accessible. Uh, I'm a fan. We are a fan of Francesc too. <laughs> yeah. So I think we are a bit over time. Uh, but one thing that we, one tradition we have uh, for each show is we do something called Free Software Friday. Why it's Friday, I think we just started the name before we released on Thursday. But, <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, but what we like to do is uh, recognize um, either contributors uh, to community or open source projects or uh, specific projects that uh, make our lives easier. Um, it does not have to be a Go project. Um, it can be in, written in any language. 
if you have somebody in mind, uh, feel free. Uh, if not, that's okay too. Um, I'll start with Carlicia and give you time to, to think about it if you have one, Kavya. <laughs> Carlicia, who do you have? Uh, I thought you were, you were saying you were going to give me time to think about it. That will last forever. But I do no, have no, one. I, I saw your doc. You have somebody there. So you don't need <laughs> Yeah, <time. laughs> Yeah, I have something ready. I ran into this Go Reporter tool. And I like it because I used to use this uh, the, uh, same a tool that was the same idea when I was doing Ruby and Ruby on Rails. It basically runs um, analysis tools and testing. It generates a code quali quality report that you can output to uh, HTML on, on your browser and you can see what's going on with your codes. It's pretty neat. Oh, this is actually really cool. I, I want to do a comparison too. Um, have you seen um, Review Dog? No, what is that? Uh, it's it's something similar too, and you can set it up to um, basically attach itself to um, GitHub and things like that, and be run on every commit. But it runs oh. some of the same kind of checks. But yeah, I'd like to do uh, a comparison of kind of what the features are. This re review dog sounds like a Ruby cop. I don't think I've seen that. Might have been after I stopped doing Ruby. I think it's called Ruby cop. I might. That doesn't sound right, but something Rubo called Robocop. Rubo yeah. yeah, there we go. Sounds like that. Hmm. Cool. I'll check this out too. And how about you, Johnny? Do you have anybody? Uh, yeah, the uh, team over at RoboMongo. So a little while ago, I was um, sort of uh, needed uh, to sort of quickly verify um, sort of the, the schema of uh, some Mongo databases that I was uh, working with and, and deploying into the, into the cloud, as they say. Um, and then uh, um, rather than sort of uh, going in the command line, I needed to sort of quickly you know, see everything that was uh, um, in, in, in the different databases. So I went and looked for a GUI tool for, for Mongo, and there are lots of different options out there, but I found RoboMongo um, over at robomongo.org to be quite usable and friendly. Um, so it's open source and free, um, so kudos to the team over there. Um, yeah, it's a great tool. I'm, I'm looking at the page for it now, and wow, um, Mongo tools have gotten beautiful. I'm trying to remember the one that I used when we were first <laughs> doing Mongo, and it, it, yeah, it was... It looked like normal, like Linux GUIs, you know. <laughs> it's like fun functional, but not the prettiest. This is actually really good looking. I was surprised myself. <laughs> and uh, how about you, Kavya? Do you have a, a project or maintainer you want to give a shout out to? Oh gosh, can I say go for JS again? You can totally <laughs> say go for JS again. Totally. Yes. <laughs> so mine is actually uh, kind of suiting to some of our conversations for today. Um, it's a project called GNU Army Clips, and um, if you if you play with embedded stuff, almost I, I swear all electronic uh, electrical engineers are Windows users um, because it's very very hard to find any tools or IDEs that work with stuff um, for anything other than Windows. Um, like I have a Windows VM I have to use for specific tools where I set my board on the floor and wire my USB cable, <laughs> everything. <laughs> Um, but yeah, so this is actually a really cool project um, that can do um, some of the JTAG and OpenOCD for debugging off of um, uh, ARM development boards and, and ARM projects. It, and it interfaces with QMU for um, running tests and stuff like that in an emulator. So it's a super cool project. 
And it makes me, I'm really thankful for it because I'd have to be completely editing out of a Windows VM all the time without it. All right. So with that, I want to thank everybody for being on the show, uh, especially thank you to Johnny and Kavya for joining us today. It was fun. My pleasure. Huge thank you to our sponsors, uh, Backtrace and Datadog. Uh, definitely show share the show with fellow Go programmers, friends, colleagues. Uh, if you aren't subscribed, you can go to gotime.fm to subscribe. Uh, follow us on Twitter at gotime.fm. And if you have something you'd like to come on the show and discuss or just have suggestions for guests or topics, uh, github.com slash gotime.fm slash ping. And with that, goodbye, everybody. We'll see you next week. Bye. Be well. Bye. All right, that wraps up this episode of Go Time. Tune in live on Thursdays at 3 p.m. U.S. Eastern at changelaw.com slash live. Join the community and Slack with us in real time at the changelaw.com slash community. Follow us on Twitter. We're at GoTimeFM. Special thanks to Backtrace and Datadog for sponsoring this show. Also, thanks to Fastly, our bandwidth partner. Head to Fastly.com to learn more. This episode was edited by Jonathan Youngblood, and the theme music for GoTime is produced by Breakmaster Cylinder. We'll see you again next week. Thanks for listening.